morning to each of you. I should have done that different. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Sorry about that. I didn't communicate well. Good to be here with you. Seems like our ranks have been decimated by bugs going around, so we hope those bugs run their course and leave. Uh, but good to see each of you being here and uh, look forward to continuing to worship with you. Welcome to Kingdom Channel's people that are still here. It was good having you all in our community. So glad some of you are still here this morning. I'd like to continue on the series that we've been in with uh, resolving spiritual roadblocks. We have two after this one that should wrap it up then, but uh, do have the third to last one in that series. And I think it's been, for me, it's been very valuable in walking through that again. It's, they're not new thoughts, but I think they are very important. And particularly as we grow, maybe as we have children growing up, uh, that they hear these concepts and realize that these are things that will hinder our growth in walking with God. So this morning, I'd like to address the topic of rebellion. My way or his way? And Judson, what you just shared actually uh, lends itself to that fairly well. Colossians 3 is one of the scriptures that I have down to read, uh, particularly verse 17 or is it maybe uh, 23 is in there as well. But we, we are in, uh, in life, we encounter many choices. And... That's why I chose to put this picture on the screen. Frequently, we can see the beginning of the path difference. We can't see the end. We can't tell where it leads. But if we're students of life and of God, and maybe even just of uh, other people's experience of Scripture, certainly we can know where some of these paths end. It, there, we can remove some of the question marks that are there. Rebellion is one of those. Sometimes it seems like a... Uh, sometimes what I think is actually rebellion, in our minds it might be a small thing, uh, when actually it is the seed or the fostering of something that, if not recognized and not checked can take us down the wrong path very far in a way that we don't want to. So rebellion has to do with who is the boss of our life. And once again, <clears throat> this morning, I'd like for us to look at definition, cause, consequence, and cure. Many of those roadblocks we've looked at, we've used that format, we've used this outline, I find that helpful going to do that again this morning. So, first of all, a definition. From Princeton's dictionary, the refusal to accept some authority, code, or convention. That is, I think, accurate. I think we should add that just from a biblical perspective, it's a rejection of, indifference to, or disregard for God-given authority. And so there's 
It's not just some authority. It is choosing my way over God's way. It's elevating my desires and the things that I value and say are important over what God says is important and His will for my life. I'd like first to go to Romans 13. This particularly addresses the civil government and our response to it. This is not a sermon about how we respond to the civil government. It's more of an overarching principle that is described here with that particular thing. I do have it on the screen, and I'd like to ask you all to read together with me the first seven verses. So beginning at... Thank you for reading with me. Continuing on in this definition section, I'd like to just note a few things from that scripture. God ordained different authority structures. It's just kind of an over-compassing thing in verse 1, if we back up to that screen. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So in whatever realm there is authority, God structured life so that we have people over us. There are, uh, nobody is exempt from that. The leaders of organizations ultimately are responsible to other people. I saw an interesting little snippet from this last week in which the Tampa police chief, it's a lady, and her husband, they live in a community where driving golf carts is acceptable. But they took that golf cart outside of the, uh, that community and were driving down the road and got stopped by an officer. And the body cam from the police stop shows that the lady, who was not driving, she gets her badge out and says... I'm the chief of police for the Tampa Police Department. I hope you'll let us go. Of course, this is all being recorded. And she actually was temporarily suspended from her position over that. And her statement 
I found interesting, I was studying for this when I, uh, or this was on my mind when I came across that article. She said <clears throat> that nobody is above the law and that was a very inappropriate uh, thing for me to say. I should not have said that. So I, I thought it was an interesting example. Somebody leading an organization, in this case law enforcement, and yet they are still subject to the same uh, rules that other people are. And that is how it should be for all of us. Anybody who functions without answering to authority, I believe, is on dangerous ground. God did not intend for any of us uh, in positions of leadership or whatever to have that kind of authority. And you all probably know of examples where people live that way and it really caused problems for them and those around them. Uh, verse 2 as well. Um, if you resist authority, you are resisting God. And that leads me to another statement I'd like to make here. That is that all rebellion towards authority ultimately is rebellion towards God. And that, I think, is one of the things that we tend to forget. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more, what that looks like, but Remember that these earthly authority structures we have, those authorities are representative of God, and our attitude and response towards them really demonstrates the way that we respond to God's authority as well. Authority was given for our good. Uh, we see that in this passage as well. Uh, verses 3 and 4, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. And remember, this was written in a time when authority, civil authority was not good. They were hostile to Christians, and yet this is what Paul is teaching. He's saying that we don't have need for fear. Authority is given for our good. He is God's minister to you for good in verse 4. Verse 5, 6, and 7 talk about the need for submission to authority. It leads to a clear conscience, and our attitude should be one of respect, honor, obedience, and submission. God's order always presents fulfillment and joy. Stepping outside of that order causes us to lose those things. It creates problems and ultimately destroys something of good or of value. Another thing, just building on that, is that God's authority structure works well when everyone in the line of authority responds correctly to the authority above them. Uh, I think that's highlighted well in both marriage and church. Probably in all the, there's four authority structures we're going to look at. But I think you could see that in any of these four, when somebody steps out of line, it causes a problem. God's order in the family is God, Christ, man, woman, children. That works well when it's done God's way. But when man steps out of his role in loving as he ought, it messes up the chain for those underneath him. And uh, there are those who react to that 
particular one because they've seen the abuse that can happen when people aren't in their correct line of authority. So any of these authorities, I think you'll find that statement to be true. Somebody gets out of line, it gets messed up, and it's not what God designed. It's not his intent. And it's up to us to know where we belong in that line of authority and to live well within that. So four areas of biblical authority. The first one you see on the screen is family, followed by a smattering of references. I'm not going to read all of those. Uh, but as we go through these four, once again, remember, I'm, I don't have listed here God separately. I don't have that as, it, he, he is the authority, he's the ultimate authority above all of these others. He's the one who is ultimately responsible or we're accountable to him. We'll read a couple of these uh, scriptures, but one, uh, in each of these lines of authority, I try to lay it out so you can see it. In this case, God, Christ, man, woman, child, or children. That's the, that's the family structure. We find that described most plainly in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, the head of Christ is God. And also we have in Ephesians 6, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And now he's quoting the commandment from the Old Testament. Honor your father and mother, parentheses, which is the first commandment with promise. And now the promise, once again quoting, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So there's an authority structure God put into place in the family that he intends for us to function and live within. The second one is in the area of the church. Once again, a number of scriptures, and I have the structure listed out. It's mentioned God, Christ, church, as in altogether corporate, and then the believer functions within that. I really wrestled with knowing how to say this one accurately because I, when I first typed this out, and was reflecting on it, it's like, I'm not sure that that is the best way to say it, but I wasn't coming up with a better way. So in a little bit, I'm going to attempt a diagram to describe some of those nuances and hopefully the way it fits. Particularly what I was wrestling with was the description of how corporate believers and individual believers fit into that equation. And so going to look at that just a little bit further. And I'm going to do that by saying together we come to Christ or to God. Some of you have seen this. I am doing it again for those of you who maybe haven't. I have found this particular uh, structure helpful, and I didn't have it drawn out ahead of time, so... We're going to try some really rough finger art here. Forgive my artistic ability. But we're going to use the triangle to represent God. We're going to use stick figures to represent people. And these will just be really quick here, representing men and women. Whoops, my finger doesn't quite do so good as a pen would here. Uh, 
how do we come to God? I'm going to present three models. In this particular model, they come to God, but there's another person in between. And that's some models where you'll have a priest or a minister, and he then represents them to God. A second model is one that is very common in Western culture in which, let's do this. You have a whole bunch of people down here, and all of them individually come to God. There's no priest. They are... They go straight to God. There's elements of that that sound correct, feel correct, each of us. Oh, boy, that's much more dim than I realized. I'm sorry. Can any of you see that? Some of you can. Okay, some can. I'm sorry. Um, I'll keep going. And for those of you who can't see it, I'll show it to you later if you wish. The model that I believe to be most biblical is this. Certainly, there are elements of the second model that are correct. But in this model, we have individuals. Oops. They come to Christ, but they don't do it just individually. It's together we come to Christ. There's not a a priest in between. It's not just me and what I think God wants me to do. It's me together with you coming to Christ. And that's the tension that I was wishing to resolve in that description that I had earlier in how do we come to the Lord? How do believers, uh, how can we accurately say that? Because we have to function together in God's family in church but then we also uh, do have responsibility to him individually. And so I think a good way just to look at that is together we come to Christ. We come to God as a body of believers. Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Ephesians 5, you'll have a passage that talks about how we function in, together in church and also in marriage, and you'll find this common theme throughout of submission to each other, and that's part of that together coming to Christ. Also in Titus, we have this phrase, and this isn't particularly talking about uh, submission. It's just saying that there is structure that God ordained. Paul wrote, In Titus 1, verse 5, he said, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So he's saying, Paul's saying, as we went through Crete, we established a church. There were things left undone. Titus, I'm leaving you here as the church matures and grows. It needs that structure of leadership. And that's, that was the pattern that was established for the church. And the third area is that of the workplace. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this is in the New Testament, we have descriptions of bond servants or servants and masters. 
And I think, in, at, I know in at least some of those contexts, it's directly referring to compulsory service or slavery. It's not uh, an employment situation. The thing I think that blends over for us today where we have free employment, we're not slaves, employees are not bound and obligated to their employers in the same way. The principles of how we relate to employers, I believe, is the same. Uh, I'm not going to look at all the the particulars of this, but Paul makes it plain. I believe it's there in Colossians in that same passage. He talks about whether your master is a believer or not, it doesn't really change the attitude you have towards it. So I don't know if you can imagine being a slave and you go to church with your boss, with your master. But in that culture, that was happening. And he says, hey, if your boss is a believer, if your master is a believer, be glad that your service goes to someone in the body of Christ. Now, I know we could have whole other discussions about what that, the rightness and wrongness of slavery. That's not what the intent is here this morning. It's simply pointing out that we as employees... Whoever the employee is, is to function in a God-honoring way. Look at these two verses, 22 and 23. Bond servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. I heard somebody say one time, I'm employed by the Lord, and my boss is nice enough to pay me for it. Now, well, that's an interesting take. I'm really serving God. Now, I'm doing something else that's maybe not overtly Christian or it may be temporal in nature, but I'm doing that because I'm serving God. I'm going to do it from that perspective. I find that very Helpful, And he says here in verse 23, do it heartily. Put yourself into it. Uh, you're serving the Lord. Do it as though you're doing to the Lord, not just to men. I think that's particularly striking when you put that in the context of compulsory employment. Do it as to the Lord. And I missed this particular, you'll see the line just popped up there, God, master, employer, and believer. That's another structure that is present. And the last one is that of the civil government. We've already read Romans 13. There are some other scriptures we could read that would highlight the same thing. We'll notice it's God, government, good or evil, and then we have believers we have the words of Jesus in John 19 when talking with Pilate. You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Jesus just acknowledging that even to Pilate, the governor under the Roman emperor, he's saying, you don't have authority unless God gives it to you. And it, he didn't say that in a disrespectful way. He was saying, the authority you have is God-given. 
And then also in Romans 13, just highlighting verses 1 and 2 again, there is no authority except from God. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. Very plain statement there of how God designed that authority. Just looking at my notes, I think I do want to make another comment here at this point. The government, you notice I, in parentheses, I put good or evil. One of the things that I've been fascinated by, and I don't have all the answers to, but I am interested and concerned of the uh, political ramifications of our attitudes and of this concept. And I've talked about it some before. I won't talk about it at great length now. But I am very concerned when followers of Jesus get swept up into political wrangling and it places those believers at odds with the government over non-biblical issues. I'm going to call them over issues of convenience and what would really be nice for us. And so I want to throw out this caution in that to be very careful to analyze when we talk negatively or we act against what the government is asking it should be, we need to be on very solid footing that that's for biblical reason and good rationale, not just our own convenience or maybe even our own political persuasion. When we do that, we have entered the political fray, and that is counter to kingdom Christianity and what God wants us to do. So in the matter of civil government, even when they don't do what we like, or what we wish they would, and certainly I'm very happy when they do things that make it easy and good for Christians. The flip side of it, the downside, was that niceness, that ease, has also made the Western church very complacent. And we have to be on guard about that. Being a follower of Jesus was not promised to be easy. In fact, Jesus said, you will have trouble because you follow me. And so when it happens, we acknowledge what it is and we continue serving Christ no matter whether the civil government is good or evil. Consequences of... Hang on a second, let me see something. Oops. All right, I missed the slide. Caught myself off guard here. I thought I, oh well, it's not there. Uh, causes. Why would we be rebellious? And I think it's two very simple reasons. It was a small slide that I thought I had in here. But simply an unregenerate heart. Believers, it's ex unbelievers, it's expected that they would not be in the proper line of authority Unfortunately, I think another cause is spiritual strongholds, and that's why we're addressing it. Uh, most 
people here today are believers. But you know what? We can fall into this trap of rebellion. And I think we do it subtly, most often maybe through blind spots. We just can't see it. We didn't know, we don't understand that that's what it is, or maybe immaturity, possibly even denial of an obvious problem, obvious to other people, maybe not obvious to us, and now we go back to that blind spot. So we have to be very careful with that. There are things sometimes that we can't see, and we want to keep open hearts to the Lord and uh, not in any way be rebellious to the uh, structures, the authority structures that we're placed under. Consequences. Before we take a look at the first one here, harming God's reputation, I'd like for you to think about a few things that you will know these from biblical knowledge. Uh, serious, the rebellion is very serious to God. Uh, the consequences of rebellion are tragic. Think about this. Uh, Lucifer, one of God's created angelic beings, rebelled, and a third of the host of heaven was kicked out of heaven by God as a result. Adam and Eve in their sin and rebellion, thrown out of Eden. The ancient world destroyed by a worldwide flood. The ancient world also scattered then by confusion of language. In the Old Testament law, you had rebellious people being stoned, including rebellious children in Deuteronomy 21. You have the story of Solomon and Rehoboam. You had the kingdom was split as a result of that disobedience and rebellion. And you had the children of Israel, a divided nation and conquered by other nations. So those we don't always see those same dramatic effects in rebellion in our lives, but rebellion will always destroy something. There always will be a penalty or a cost uh, and a consequence to that. Rebellion always breaks God's design and damages relationships. I have several consequences. The first one you see on the screen God's reputation is harm. You're like, well, how can God's reputation be harmed? He's a good, he's just, he's always going to be that. That's true. It doesn't change God, but it changes people's perception of him. It's one of the very sad consequences of stepping out of God's order. 1 Timothy 6, let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their master. I'm sorry, let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. And I'd like for you to please notice this last phrase, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. It's saying if you don't do this, there's the likelihood or the consequence of God, the name of God and his doctrine might be spoken evil of, blasphemed. Others will look down, they'll say, oh, see Mr. So-and-so, Miss So-and-so, that's not working. Christianity must not be real. And we have that age-old problem of people saying, I reject it because of the hypocrites. Uh, a very sad thing to do. The hypocrites, if that's what they really are, they won't ever make it to heaven, and now you're 
if you react in that way, you're allowing that person who's not right to control you. When God says, here's my standard, we shoot for that standard regardless of the hypocrisy of others. God's reputation may be harmed. I have some other uh, verses. Interesting, if you want to do a study, go to Exodus 20. I'm sorry, Ezekiel 20. And in a repeated phrase in that passage is, he says, I did this, I wrought those works for my namesake. God's saying, I did it for my reputation, for what other people know about me. Uh, and in verse 22, he used this phrase, that it should not be, talking about his name, his reputation, that it should not be polluted in the sight of the heathen. So one of the consequences is that we may hinder other people in the way they perceive God. Second one is, as a consequence of rebellion, we're going to resent and reject correction. We're not going to be able to get the guidance that we need in life if we have a rebellious spirit. Proverbs 1.24 says, Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded, because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. And that's a little snippet in the middle of someone who's being described as a fool. They've done that. They have rejected that correction. They are now missing the direction that they really need. I personally believe that's the heart of what Jesus teaches about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is vital in our lives. And at some point when we reject and reject and reject, God says, I'll leave you to your own devices, and the voice of the Spirit goes quiet. That is the means by which we are drawn to God. That rebellion uh, can have very dramatic consequences for us, not getting the correction and direction that we need. It also gives ground to the enemy. This is one of the most striking and sobering verses about rebellion. And I would urge all of you, children included, if you ever think about being rebellious, being disobedient to the authorities over you, adults as well, please remember 1 Samuel 5.23, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Now, how in the world can that be? I'm not worshiping the devil. I'm not doing all the things that witches do. So how is rebellion like the sin of witchcraft? Well, think about what rebellion does. Think about what witchcraft is. Witchcraft is a force and a power opposed directly in opposition to God. What is rebellion? It's the same thing, just maybe coming from me, my attitudes. I mean, you could say it all goes back to the devil. But it's saying, I know better than God. I can come against this. I don't have to do it God's way. I can be in rebellion. And that's why he's saying it's as a sin as witchcraft. It's just as bad as it's similar to overtly working for the devil. 
very sobering for me. It rejects God's authority and gives room for the devil to influence and control. Rebellion keeps us from being useful to God. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So now this is kind of a, maybe an extension of the last one. We're talking about rebellion, elevating ourselves against God. Here's God's response described. He says, God says, God resists the proud. Those who are proud enough to elevate themselves and say, I don't need to do it God's way, well, God's going to resist that. And guess who's bigger? Guess who's more powerful? I'm not going to win if I put myself in those shoes. God will win. God is the one who ultimately will have the say there. He it, he, and we, it will keep us from being useful. In fact, we think we could say that God allows pressure in our lives to make us useful. And by pressure, I'm talking about things that give us direction and take us places we wouldn't naturally be inclined to go. He does that to build our character. Look at it this way. How many times... Would you look back at the good times and say, oh, that was so character building? Versus how many times do you look back at the tough times and you say, well, God took me through that one. That was character building. Typically, it's the latter. I'm not saying you can't learn anything from the good times, but it's the hard times that typically make us grow. Look at the biblical heroes. Why do we look up to them? It's because they came through the tough times and they did well. That's why they're heroes. People that went through tough times and didn't do so well, you don't call them heroes. Rebellion can keep us from being useful to God. And lastly, rebellion can lead to unmet needs. Psalm 68, 6 says, The rebellious dwell in a dry land. Ephesians 5 talks about love and submission, or some people call it respect. Meeting, and I'm saying this, they meet emotional needs in marriage. What I'm talking about here is I do believe that in any of these relationships, in this case I'm going to talk about marriage, when people are in their proper place in a marriage relationship, uh, it feeds that cycle of loving, makes it easier to respect, respecting makes it easier to love, and the cycle goes around. You break that cycle with a lack of love or a lack of respect, and it feeds the same thing. Uh, you end up, I can't even think of the name of the book that presents that idea, but it has stuck with me. Is it Les and Leslie Parrott's book? Can I think, what's the name of that book? Love and Respect, that's the name of the book, yeah, wow. Uh, but that, but that he, they call it the crazy cycle when we break that because a lack of love makes it easier to not respect and not respecting makes it easier to not love and now you're in the crazy cycle. What's the cure? Do it God's way. Love and respect. Love, be submissive. Work together as a couple. To do that, you end up, if you break that cycle and you go to the crazy cycle, you will end up not having 
your needs met in that relationship. And I think that is true in many other authority structures and relationships as well. When we don't do it God's way, it will cause a tremendous amount of stress and not function in the way that God wants it to. All right, on this next slide, I have five things listed, and I'm going to just look at them briefly, and you're going to see all five of them. I'm prepping you for this because what your mind's going to do is you're going to want to read all five. So I'm going to let you do that, but then let's come back and talk about that. Cure for rebellion. Identify it. Repent of the rebellious spirit or actions. Replace the rebellion. Yield to Christ's way and cultivate a submissive spirit. And we're going to wrap up with this one. Identify rebellion. Consider the authorities in your life. We've talked about four of them. Family, church, government, employment. How do I relate to the government, my parents, spouse, employers, spiritual leaders, maybe even my attitude towards God himself or towards others. Do I know better? Do I always know better? I wouldn't think what I did if I didn't think I was right. So why shouldn't I think that's better in the way you think? Well, that's the root of selfish, and I'm going to say even the root of rebellious thinking is elevating my own opinion over the others around me. Consider the attitudes and actions towards these authorities in your life. Is it one of disrespect or disobedience or wishing ill on them or hiding actions or events from authority? Maybe you've subscribed to what they don't know won't hurt them. Unfortunately, I've encountered those folks who live that way. That hidden life of duplicity is not healthy at all. Scripture also talks about speaking evil of authority. We need to be very careful on that one. Or harboring negative thoughts about authority. What are we told to do in 1 Timothy, is it 3? Would therefore that you pray for all who are in authority. Second one I have listed here is to repent of the rebellious spirit. Acknowledge rebellion as sin. Resolve that. Repent of it. Go back and say, this is wrong. God, I don't want anything to do with it. Pray that prayer of God, I confess I have been rebellious and I want nothing to do with it. Uh, begin praying for that person in authority and cultivating respect and love towards them. Replace the rebellion, and I, yeah, as I just mentioned, you need to replace that with respect, honor, obedience, submission. Go back to Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 6. Yield to Christ's way. Once again, back to Romans 13, and then lastly, cultivate a submissive spirit. That leads to peace and fulfillment. It's 
provides the opposite of unmet needs. The needs get met. The, the way I live, the peace in my heart, that comes as I cultivate that spirit of submission. And it's just a recognition of the fact that functioning God's way in His authority structure will help all of those structures to function well and in a, uh, what I'm going to call happy, joyful. doesn't mean everything will always be the way we wish it was, but it will remove much unnecessary strife and grief. So I'm going to conclude with the verse in 1 Samuel 15, encouraging us, urging us to not allow any root of rebellion to be in our hearts, but to resolve it and to always say yes to the Lord. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Let's pray.